Okay, so seems like it's been a while. Uh, we're actually back in Psalms, so uh, I don't know how long it's been, but it does seem like it's been a while. But we are number 65. And we're just continuing our our way, working through the Psalms. <clears throat> so we'll begin here with Psalm 65 and summary statement. Psalm 65 praises God from Zion for the redemption of Israel and the restoration of the earth. I'll go over that again. Psalm 65 praises God from Zion for the redemption of Israel and the restoration of the earth. To put this in a simple outline for this psalm, verses 1 to 4, God hears. Verses 5 to 13, God answers. So I'll go over that one more time. Verses 1 to 4, God hears. And verses 5 to 13, God answers. Okay, so let's move to our observations. So Psalm 65 was written by David. The superscription ascribes it to him, to the chief musician, a psalm and song of David. Uh, It's directed to the chief musician, as you see there. It's noted as a psalm and as a song. Uh, The word for psalm, uh, which has been quite common, we've talked about a number of times, it it generally refers to the musical accompaniment um, and song, obviously, um, that referring to um, lyrical singing. So uh, this is a lyrical song um, to instrumental accompaniment. That would be the direction that we have in the beginning. There's no other musical direction um, in the text of the psalm or in the heading. And there's no occasion that is mentioned, um, either in the heading or in the text of the psalm itself. To classify Psalm 65, I would put it as a praise psalm primarily. Um, And it follows conventions of praise psalms, which are um, pretty loose. But um, you have a call to praise, verses 1 to 2, and then verses 3 to 13, you have a catalog of either the praiseworthy acts or attributes of God. So that's, again, that's very general and broad of a, of a category, but it does, it does fit that. And it, the overall um, tone of the psalm is certainly one of praise. Uh, this psalm also has elements of a creation psalm. So you have references to, um, to the sea, to the ends of the earth in verse 5, the mountains in verse 6, seas and waves in verse 7, Sunrise and sunset in verse eight, watering the watering of the earth in verse nine, uh, ridges and furrows and showers on the earth in verse ten, pastures, wilderness and hills in verse twelve, pastures and flocks and valleys in verse thirteen. So you have a number of creation elements um, in this psalm. This psalm is also um, what I'm calling um, predictive, prophetic, um, and we've talked mainly about two psalm types that are prophetic. One would be pronouncement, 
um, where there's some sort of a prophetic pronouncement of judgment, something of that nature, and then predictive. Um, so predictive is foretelling some futures, looking forward to some sort of future fulfillment. And so the, the prophetic nature of this psalm comes out um, not only in this psalm itself, but also in the group of psalms that it belongs to. And we'll talk a little bit about that um, in, in a few moments. But it opens up this psalm by setting an expectation for the future, this silent waiting that is mentioned um, in verse number one in reference to Zion. So the, these are this is setting an expectation of a future um, fulfillment. And so the psalm, as it progresses, it depicts a future salvation with a renewed earth where there is abundance, there's joy, there's singing and praising God all over the earth. Um, this is... This is the redemption of the earth that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 23. Um, this is that redemption of the earth that follows the day of the Lord at the end of the time of tribulation um, when he steals the seas and the nations. And we'll talk about some of those things a little more as we go on. So I would put this psalm in the category of, of prophetic predictive. Um, psalm 65 connects with the preceding David psalm. So we're here in book two of the Psalms. Uh, book two begins with a Korahite collection of Psalms. It has one Psalm of Asaph. We'll, we're going to see Psalms of Asaph later, um, not in this book, but later in, in the Psalm books. So it has one Psalm of Asaph, and then it begins this David group of Psalms. So Psalm 51 um, up to 64, which right before here in 65. Um, so this Psalm obviously connects with the other David Psalms. And it particularly connects with Psalm 51. All right, so in Psalm 65, we have the second of only two confessions of sin that occur in Psalms in book number two. So the first one being obviously Psalm 51. That's what that Psalm is most famously known for. And the second occurs here in Psalm number 65. Both of those in the David group of Psalms in book number two. You have... Reference here to the singing of praise to God, which also occurs in Psalm 51, verse 14. And you have the mention of Zion, uh, Psalm 51, and verse number 18. So a number of connections with Psalm 51 in this psalm. But then this psalm, Psalm 65, especially connects with a subgroup of the David Psalms that start here and, and come after. So from Psalm 65 through Psalm 68, they, they form a group of psalms within this David group of psalms. So one of the things that connects them obviously together is the fact that Psalm 65 through Psalm 68 all have this word for song in the heading of the psalm. And this word for song or singing um, is most often in the psalms associated with future kingdom blessing. Uh, especially when it is joined or qualified as the singing of new songs or a new song. We've talked about this some, but it's probably been a, it's probably been a while. Um, so obviously that's, again, another, another signal that we are possibly looking at a, a predictive um, prophetic psalm. So when you look then at this group, this Psalm 65 to Psalm 68, and then you think about, the Korahite group of psalms that started book number two. So 
the Korahite group has reference to song, to the singing of songs uh, in Psalm 42, verse number eight. Now that's the first one, but then more toward the middle and toward the end, Psalm 45, verse one, Psalm 46, verse one, Psalm 48, verse one. So if you lay out this, this Korahite group of Psalms and you see this reference to singing, it occurs in the beginning, but then you see a concentration of occurrence that comes toward the end of this group. All right, so the use of song in the David group also has a concentrated use toward the end of the David group. So it actually occurs in Psalm 65, 66, 67, and 68, all in the superscription, but in the text of the psalm in Psalm 69 uh, in verse number three, I think it is. Um, so we've talked about before how there are a lot of parallels between the Korahite group of Psalms that start book two and the David group of Psalms that essentially end book two, though it ends on the Psalm of Solomon. Um, So the Korahite group develops early themes and we track those through those Psalms. So you had themes of exile and themes of abandonment and themes of persecution by enemies. And we saw in this Korahite group, as you progress from beginning to end of it, that by the end, those those things are reversed um, in the later Psalms. You have the coming of the king and it reverses. Uh, there's triumph, there's victory over the enemies. There's um, gathering to Zion and to Jerusalem so that the exile and the abandonment, all these things are, are over. All right, so this David group of Psalms mirrors that progression um, very well. And Psalm 65 actually is the one that marks the beginning of the reversal. So up to this point with the David Psalms, beginning with Psalm 51 up through Psalm 64, we've seen, we've seen these same themes, exile and abandonment um, and judgment and persecution by enemies. We've seen these same themes being developed. And Psalm 65 is the one that marks the reversals beginning to take place. And so through the through to the end, we are going to see some reversals um, of those things, just like we did in the Korah group. All right, so Psalm 65 and uh, the poetic imagery in this psalm. Um, first of all, the, the mood of this psalm, when you read it, it's very bright. It's, it's very hopeful, um, which is a marked difference. So if you're reading through the David group of psalms, um, it's, there's quite a bit of darkness as you're going through. Um, uh, we have um, themes of treachery and betrayal, um, his being exiled in the wilderness, um, being persecuted and hunted day and night, his, his life being sought after. We have a lot of, of dark themes coming through there. And so we hit this psalm, and it's very bright, very hopeful. So the mood of this psalm, um, is markedly different from those that come before it. And this psalm is rich in imagery. So um, especially in verses 6 to 13, which a lot of this imagery comes in through these creation elements that we talked about earlier. So you, you get imagery of like God standing up the mountains, you know, almost like he's, he's arranging it and, and, you know, setting it in place and setting it upright and, and you know, adjusting it. Um, you get the imagery of sunrise to sunset. Um, that of watering the earth. Um, You get the imagery of these wagon tracks that are littered with abundance. And this uh, has come about by like a full loaded wagon that's dropping pieces of its load as it goes across these tracks. We have 
pastures and valleys being clothed with grazing animals and clothed with grain. So a lot of rich imagery, particularly around the creation elements of the psalm. All right, so we want to work our way through this psalm, 13 verses. And I'll go ahead and read through this. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest, and calls us to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. By terrible things in righteousness wilt thou answer us, O God of our salvation, who art the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of them that are afar off upon the sea, which by his strength settest fast the mountains, being girded with power, which stilleth the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the people. They also that dwell in the uttermost parts are afraid at thy tokens. Thou makest the outgoings of the morning and evening to rejoice. Thou visitest the earth and waterest it. Thou greatly enrichest it with the river of God, which is full of water. Thou preparest them corn when thou hast so provided for it. Thou waterest the ridges thereof abundantly. Thou settlest the furrows thereof. Thou makest it soft with showers. Thou blessest the springing thereof. Thou crownest the year with thy goodness and thy paths drop fatness. They drop upon the pastures of the wilderness and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered over with corn. They shout for joy. They also sing. Okay, so verses 1 and 2 give us this opening address to God, and we can see that, and it does continue for a little ways, um, this direct address to God. Um, Praise waiteth for thee, and the word for waiting also includes the idea of of waiting silently. In other words, it's it's a word that expresses expectation. Um, It was used back in Psalm 62.1 in a similar way. Now, Zion... Zion is the place where God installs his anointed son, King, um, all the way back in Psalm 2 and verse number 6. And we've seen references to that um, throughout the Psalms as we've come forward to this point. Uh, This is the place where um, he will come to reign. Um, You may, I don't know, um, I don't know how the different uh, Bible publishers do it. Um, Zion there may have an S in your Bible instead of a Z. Um, And as I understand it, the S would be sort of a holdover coming over from Latin. Uh, in Hebrew, it is the Hebrew letter Zion, which is transliterated as a Z um, in English. So I don't know why um, they retained that in some places um, and gave it as the Z in others. But anyway, just all that to say, if, you're, if your Bible has an S there, it, it's, it's no different. It, it's, there's no significance to the fact that it's an S there uh, instead of a Z. It's still talking about the same place, Zion. Uh, the reference to Jerusalem, particularly the city of the king. Um, so um, Zion is the place where salvation, the salvation of Israel comes from. That's um, uh, Psalm 53 and verse number 6. And so this expectation is set for the coming of the Messianic king to Zion and all that follows. And that's exactly what we find in this psalm. He refers to the paying of vows and the paying or The performing of vows is associated with God's answering the laments of his people. So we've seen this before in a number of psalms, and it it typically comes as a statement in reference to 
some sort of lament, some some sort of crisis, um, and looking forward to the deliverance and the praise of God for that deliverance. So Psalm 22 and verse 25, um, Psalm 50 and verse 14. In this David group, Psalm 56, 12, and um, I believe it also, it's also, it also in uh, Psalm 51, uh, verses 5 and 8. So this, this paying of vows, in other words, is, when it's mentioned, is an, is an eschatological fulfillment. So it, it's, it's one that's looking forward to the future. When that deliverance comes, uh, these um, will be paid. Um, verse 2 speaks of God hearing prayer. And God hearing prayer has given confidence to David in all of his troubles. He's referred to that in Psalm 54, verse 2, Psalm 55, verses 17 and 19, Psalm 61, verses 1 and 5, and Psalm 64, verse 1. More recently, um, the word for flesh there is a word that can refer to the body itself. And most often it seems like it does, especially in the Psalms. Um, and like Psalm 16, 9 would be one place where um, the flesh is not left or the body is not left in the grave to see corruption. But here it's actually a reference to people, which it, it can mean. It can refer literally to the body or it can simply refer to people, to um, human beings. Um, that's not extremely common in the Psalms, but it does occur here. And another similar occurrence of that is Psalm 145 and verse number 21. Now, so this reference to the flesh here, all flesh shall, shall come to God, um, it's reflected later in the all mankind, um, the all mankind that we saw um, in the previous Psalm, uh, in um, Psalm 64, um, so and 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 comes out in later parts of this psalm. So, with with this reference at the end of verse two, all flesh coming to God and coming to God in Zion, and other references that we have in the Psalms, then obviously this is a looking forward to the eschatological gathering of the nations to Him at Zion and. Uh, another reference to that would be like Psalm 47, verses 7 to 9. And then, of course, places like Zechariah chapter 14 and, and, and some of the prophets um, that foretell of that. So verses 3 to 4 then give us the confession of sins and the forgiveness. So iniquity uh, is another one of those iniquity and transgressions. It's another one of those links with Psalm 51. Iniquity was mentioned three times in Psalm 51, verses 2, 5, and 9. Transgressions is mentioned twice in Psalm 51, verse 1 and verse 3. And so this, but this is the other instance of confession of sin in this David group of Psalms. One of the things that, um, I, I like, I, you know, if I began to try to enumerate all the things I've learned, um, you know, embarking on this study, one of the things that I found surprising is that confessions of sin are relatively rare in the Psalms. And I, I wouldn't have thought that starting out. I would have thought, oh, the you know, Psalms are going to be filled with all these confessions of sin. But they're they're really not. They're they're pretty rare. So you have seven in book one of the Psalms. So that's Psalm 6, 25, 32, 38, 39, 40, and 41. You have two confessions of sin in book two, Psalm 51 and Psalm 65. You have two in book number three, Psalm 78 and Psalm 85. You have two in book number four, Psalm 103 and Psalm 106. 
And you have one in book five, Psalm 130. So confessions of sin are not extremely common in the Psalms. They do occur, um, and obviously when they do occur, they are quite significant, um, but just not, not as common as I would have thought that they would be. So this is, this is the second and last confession of sin that occurs in this book of the Psalms. Now, so then you think back to Psalm 51. And one of the things about Psalm 51 is that it seems out of place. So you come through these Psalms of Korah, and especially as you get to the end, turning maybe with about um, Psalm 45 or so, and, and going through 49, you get all these references to design, you get all these references to the king coming to Jerusalem, you get all these references of, of victory over enemies. You know, it's all this, all these eschatological references. And you get this Psalm of Asaph, which Psalms of Asaph also have um, very strong um, eschatological connections. And, and then you get into this David group, which starts with Psalm 51, which is a confession of David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And it 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 kind of seems out of place because then Psalm 52 starts to reflect and mirror Psalm, the Psalms of Korah and starts going along that same progression that we've been tracking. Well, Psalm 65 provides an answer to Psalm 51. So we have David's confession and we have some expressions of confidence in Psalm 51, but Psalm 65 can be seen like an answer um, to David's confession of sin. But also, and this is, this is significant for the um, overall trajectory of the Psalms, it foreshadows the failure of the Davidic kingship. So just as, just as we saw with the Psalms of Korah, you generally have an upward trajectory from beginning to the end. With the Psalms of David, you've got the same thing. But even, even as you go on that upward trajectory, the later Psalms of David in this group, there still are um, shadows there. And when you get into book number three, that is where you really see the lament of the failure of the Davidic kingship um, coming into being. And so Psalm 51 and Psalm 65 together do give us a foreshadow of that failure of the Davidic kingship. All right, let's let's keep moving here. Um, He speaks of the purging away of iniquities and transgressions. Um, The word that is used there is most often translated atonement. Um, It refers to the complete covering of sin used in uh, places like Exodus chapter 30 and verse number 10, uh, Leviticus chapter 16, verses 10 to 11. And you also should note here the change from the singular to the plural. Um, Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. So there's a, there's a, a change here showing that the psalm looks forward to communal forgiveness, communal praise. In other words, these are larger concerns than, than just that of David individually or um, David as a person. Um, verse 4, this, this word choose or choosest, is, uh, the word that means to, to choose, to elect, to pick out. Um, and it refers to, it's a word that is used to refer to Israel as being chosen as God's inheritance in Psalm thirty-three, twelve. It's a word used as the inheritance that is chosen for Israel in Psalm 47, 4. And here it is used to refer to God's choosing of the people who will draw near to him. And 
from the context of the psalm in Zion. Those who will be gathered to Zion to praise God. Those who will dwell with him. And he says those will be satisfied. Um, that word is the idea of, of just a full satisfaction. Um, it's the future fullness of those who trust in him. And we've, we've seen it referred to in Psalm 17, verse 15, Psalm 22, verse 26, Psalm 37, 19, and Psalm 63, 5. The reference of courts and house and temple anticipate Zion in the coming of the king. Now, when we get to verses 5 to 8, we now begin to, to get this picture of order that is coming out of chaos, that, that God is bringing order out of chaos. So in verse 5, it speaks of his awe-inspiring deeds. Um, I think it's translated there as terrible things, and it's translated that way um, in another instance as well. Awe-inspiring deeds. Now, this is the, the same term is used to speak of the Red Sea deliverance in Psalm 106 and verse number 22. So in other words, it's setting us up for the deliverance described in the following verses, God's awe-inspiring deeds. He uses the, actually uses the term salvation. He is the God of our salvation, which means deliverance or rescue, and then states that he is the confidence or is the hope of all the ends of the earth. And so here again, we see a marked difference. We're seeing a reversal taking place from the, the previous addresses to the nations were all warnings of judgment and um, imprecatory prayers and, and all of those kind of things. And here, God is spoken of as being the hope of the nations or for the nations, obviously for all of those who trust in him. Verse 6 refers to his creative power, um, his ordering of the universe, and that um, that power is that that will quiet the earth in verse number seven. So the roaring um, of the waves and the seas are set parallel with the tumult of the people or the noise of the nations um, in their raging. This is actually imagery that is used of the nations in the time of tribulation. So um, Luke chapter 21, verse 25, the Olivet Discourse, um, Revelation uh, chapter 17, verses 1 and 15, um, this imagery of the raging seas and, and raging um, oceans and, and the raging of the nations opposing God. And we have the same word here for um, people or nations that is used in Psalm 2 and verse number 1, uh, the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing, the nations there that's referred to. Verse number 8 we see that the fear of the Lord will, and again, these all these things are future-looking, the, the fear of the Lord will cover the earth, and that will result in the rejoicing of the nations. Now, the morning and evening here, the outgoing of the morning and evening that he refers to, this is a reference to the rising and the setting of the sun. So, in other words, it's a poetic expression for east to west. It's It's a uh, it's another way of speaking of the whole earth. Verses 9 to 13 then give us the blessings of visitation. So when God comes to the earth, in, obviously in the person of the Messiah, these are the blessings that come. So God comes to the earth and blesses it. And he causes the earth to bring forth abundantly. The blessings of Abraham here are realized. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, this blessings will come upon all the families of the earth. 
um, later in like Deuteronomy chapter um, 28, uh, verses 1 to 14 in particular, you get all these blessings enumerated um, for the people of Israel if they kept covenant with God, of course, which they did not. And the blessings that are spelled out there in Deuteronomy 28, when you read the whole chapter in context, um, you realize those blessings will not be realized until the later days when Israel returns and God gathers those whom he scattered. Uh, in verse 10, the blessings continue, the, a lot of water imagery, river and, and water. Uh, obviously, this is a reversal of the desolation promised in the day of the Lord. So one of the, um, one of the recurring themes or features of the day of the Lord judgment, that, that's the, the day of the Lord that culminates um, the time of great tribulation, that second three and a half years or the second half of the um, seven-year time there. One of the recurring imagery is that of desolation of the land, um, being dry and, and parched, all these things. And we have a, all these blessings of the Lord that are spoken of in terms of everything being being well watered and even softened um, and bringing forth abundantly. In verse eleven, he mentions the crown, and this is anticipating. The crowning of the son of Adam in uh, same word is used in Psalm eight verse number five. This referring, of course, to the second Adam, um, crowning the year. And that word there means a division of time, so it can be a year, uh, it can be a lifetime, it can also mean an age. And really, age fits best as the verse describes a golden age of God's blessings on the earth through the crowned and enthroned King. Now the paths here, the paths that drop fatness. The, this is this is the tracks, um, like wagon tracks, and the image is is like an overflow. So you imagine an, a wagon that's just loaded down. It's coming out of the out of the field of uh, harvest. It's just loaded down. It's it's so loaded down as it rolls along. It's dropping um, pieces here and there, um, and that's that. In other words, this is the imagery of the great abundance, the, the earth bringing forth abundantly all this, um, all this production, all this yield and harvest. Um, verse 12, the wilderness is a pasture with the hills rejoicing all around. And this is, in, this is reminiscent to us of passages that refer to that kingdom of the Messiah, places like Isaiah 55, verses 12 and 13, that looks forward to the hills and the trees clapping their hands for joy and that, that sort of imagery. Verse number 13, the pastures and the valleys are clothed with grain and with grazing animals. Um, again, it's an image of abundance and of fruitfulness. The pastures and the valleys are also shouting for joy, um, singing praises in those days. So um, the Bible speaks of that time. So when Christ returns to the earth, he establishes his kingdom on the earth. Um, the earth will be renewed. Um, the earth will bring forth abundantly um, the um, all of those, all that sort of imagery that goes along with that um, is evoked here in this psalm. All right, so interpretation. What does Psalm 65 teach? Well, Psalm 65 teaches God, obviously, as the creator and as the sovereign ruler of creation. Um, so God's universal reign is alluded to here. And once again, though, Though we, it's not given a place of prominence. Again, the overall mood of the psalm is very bright and very hopeful. We do see that tumults of the people. There's this 
There's these glimpses of this chaos on the earth, raging of the seas and of the waves, but God steals all of that. So he's the sovereign creator. He's the sovereign ruler over his creation, and God's universal reign is unaffected by chaos on the earth. It it doesn't change God's reign. It doesn't hinder him. It doesn't limit him in any way. Psalm 65 also teaches God's sovereign grace in salvation. So verse number four in particular, God chooses, God covers sins, and then God satisfies with his goodness. This is a this is a picture of salvation from beginning to end, like what we what we get in, for instance, in Ephesians chapter number one, where you have the mention there that goes from predestination and before the foundation of the world, um, all the way through redemption in Christ and future inheritance. So a full picture of salvation and God's sovereign grace, which comes in Ephesians chapter two, that it's by grace um, that you are saved. In other words, the this action and this activity of God shows his salvation to be originated with him, to be initiated by him, to be fulfilled by him. In other words, it's not dependent on um, human works or limited by them. Now, as we look at Psalm 65, the Messianic hope of Psalm 65 is seen through this expectation that is set for salvation in Zion right from the very start of this psalm. And obviously being a a prophetic predictive psalm, we've talked about already a number of the eschatological elements of this psalm. So what we see in Psalm 65 is God overcoming these two great problems that have been plaguing David um, from Psalm 51 through Psalm 64. And that is, first of all, sin his own sin. So we have this confession of sin in verse number three and the praise for forgiveness, for atonement, for the covering, the purging of sin. Um, We have the second problem is the opposition of enemies. And that has been a continual theme throughout the David group of Psalms. Now, enemies aren't mentioned specifically. We Again, we get that small glimpse of the raging of the seas and the waves and the tumults of the people or of the nations. We just get that small glimpse of that, but God is is stealing them. So these two great problems for David, his own sin, which as we saw in Psalm 51 when we looked at it, threatened um, God's covenant with him um, or appeared to. Of course, the, the answer to that is given. And then the opposition of the enemies that sought to um, bring his glory down into the dust, like from... Um, some of the earlier psalms, uh, like Psalm uh, 3 and, and some of the real early psalms and laments. So Psalm 65 shows us God um, essentially answering these two great problems and removing them and shows a great reversal for those who trust in him. So there's hope for Israel, and we see that in the, the reference to Zion. We see that in the, in the community, uh, the we and the our, the plural uh, pronouns that David uses. There's hope for Israel, but not just Israel. There's also hope for the nations in this psalm, verses 5 and 7 to 9 in particular. So God's universal reign comes to the earth with a visitation, which will be the crowned Messiah in Zion, which we've seen we've seen expected all the way beginning from Psalm number 2. So this ends the laments of his people. 
Um, in other words, this, this visitation ends the laments of his people. There are more lament psalms as we go through. But what we're saying is, is this psalm is looking forward to that time when all laments are done. All, all laments are over. All laments have been answered with a glorious rescue and the salvation of God. It ends the exile, fulfills the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. And this leads to his fear covering the earth, and that results in universal um, communal praise of God centering in Zion. All right, so let's go to application. Um, have two of these, the way that Psalm 65 speaks to us today. Number one, understanding Psalm 65 helps us understand that every good gift is from God, not just in the future, but also in the past as we look at our history and also in the present. Every good gift, no matter how small it may seem, every good gift comes to us from God. So this psalm helps us to see the gratitude that we should have, prompting us to praise God as we count every small mercy as great and understanding that this is a promise of what is to come, greater than we can think or imagine. Number two, understanding Psalm 65 helps us look forward to an age when the earth will be restored and set right. Now, that is not a description of the world that we live in today. That's not a description of how things are as we experience them. I don't know about you. Sometimes I, I just really just get tired of the evil and the sin that we see all around us, the, the, the pursuit of death, all of the, all the things, the glorification of sin, the opposition to God, the mocking and blaspheming that, that comes from the highest you know, positions um, of the land all the way down to the least. And sometimes it's, it's, just, a, it's just a weariness. Um, maybe you don't think like that, but I know that, that a lot of times it just, it just gets wearisome, just gets burdensome. Um, but we, we understand with a, with a psalm like this that this is not how things are always going to be. There's going to come a time when God is going to visit this earth when Christ returns, and he's going to set things to right. And that's going to be a golden age of blessing when the earth brings forth abundantly and the lion lies down with the lamb and all of these things um, that we are um, told about in the scripture to look forward to. All right, that's all I have on Psalm 65. Any 